Our gospel reading for tonight is from Luke um, chapter 7. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion for her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. Now this word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. I was driving up Interstate 35 just south of Duluth. My wife to my right in the passenger seat, my daughter in the back seat eating cheddar bunnies or sleeping or maybe both. I can't remember. I can't remember because I was on the phone on a conference call. Things were tough at work. I was already an hour into this conference call as we sped down the highway. The reason we were on the, on the road in the first place was because of another call, actually, from my dad the night before. Your grandfather is dying, he said. You better come up. So I took the day off, and we packed the car in a hurry. We forgot a lot of things in the rush, but I couldn't even remember what we forgot. And then, of course, it began to snow. A lot. It was May. (laughs) Just a few weeks ago, you remember? And my mind began to wander with the snowflakes passing by, wandering from my grandfather to my great-grandmother. She lived to the ripe old age of 98. My grandfather is currently 94, almost 95. I found myself doing a kind of um, obsessive math, which is not really my thing usually, but um, comparing my grandfather's age to my grandmother's, 94, 98, almost 95, 98, 94, 94 minus 98, or 95, how long would he live? Not to 98, it seems, but how much time did he have left? And then my mind wandered further, which happens to me quite a lot. Ask my wife and daughter. I'm kind of a mental rambler. Forgive me, you've got a mental rambler here in the pulpit. 
But my mind rambled in this particular case to a scene in my confirmation class 25 years ago. I work in so-called religious publishing, and even though the conference call I was on wasn't about confirmation per se, some of us have been working um, on a new confirmation program uh, this spring. So confirmation was on my mind. But in this case, I was mentally back in my confirmation class 25 years ago as we drove on I-35 to the only thing that I really remember about it. Well, actually, the only two things I remember about it. One was Gina Hutch spinning ACDC records before classes started. You know, Hell's Bells, Back in Black. Very theological, I suppose, in their own ways. What I remember besides that was a question I asked my pastor. You shook me all night long, still ringing in my ears. I asked, where is my great-grandmother now? She had been dead for over a decade. We were talking, of course, about the resurrection. I clarified my question further, perhaps dangerously so, into a either-slash-or question. Blame it on AC-slash-DC. Anyway, I asked him point blank, is she in heaven right now? Or is she dead in the ground waiting for the so-called last day? It was an innocent enough question, I suppose, or maybe not, but I'm sure Gina Hutch was with me in the moment. I probably used my great-grandmother as an example for my question since she was uh, dead and, you know, I knew her. Um, But there are other family members that I also knew that were dead as well. I suppose she had a certain fascination for me, this great-grandmother, and respect. 98 years old, you know, that's kind of biblical age, kind of the Methuselah of the family. Meanwhile, my question to the pastor hung in the air of the classroom, like the snowflakes hanging outside our car window. In the end, my pastor said nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing I can remember anyway. It wasn't like I was trying to cause trouble, not exactly. It wasn't like I was playing ACDC records backwards, looking for some sort of satanic messages in the middle of class. It was a real question. And all I got, or at least all I have at this point, after those years, is silence. It's a strange story, today's gospel text. I read it a few times before we hit the road up north that day, thinking maybe I should let it simmer in my head as we drove. I don't know about you, but I do some good thinking, or at least I think I do, on the road. There's something about the hypnotic rhythm of the center line, or even better, the broken line, in a two-lane highway. But this text only seemed to magnify the hypnotic effect of the road. It felt so a matter of fact, straight to the point, almost minimalist, short. What Richard just read was only 150 words. There's really not much drama at all, except for the potential of a widow's crying and a son, of course, being brought back to life. What struck me was how easy it was to read this text and not experience the impact of the story. 
kind of like watching the pavement ahead of you pass below your car and then glimpsing it through the rearview mirror now behind you, gone. I mean, this is not an everyday miracle. It's not just turning water into wine, which is great and all, but this is kind of the ultimate miracle, turning death into life. No chance for parlor tricks here, or two-buck chuck. So I felt I needed to let this text rattle my head for a while. Maybe something would shake something out of my mind, a pothole, something. So I let my mind wander even further. What else could I do? That's who I am. To a text that we didn't read in today's lectionary, but which I read before I left on this trip. 1 Kings 17. In this story, the prophet Elijah is on the run from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. He was a fugitive like many prophets are. First, he's led or led to a stream and fed by ravens. And then God tells him to go see a widow in Zarephath, another widow. When he gets there, desperate man that he is, things get even more desperate, and not just for him. The widow and her son are on their last morsels of food and are getting ready to die. Or as the widow says to Elijah when he arrives, I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it, that is the last morsels of food, for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Miraculously, at at least for the moment, Elijah makes the food last. But then things take an even more desperate turn. Her son dies. What have you against me, O man of God? The widow says to Elijah. You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. At this point, if I were Elijah, I would pull a Jonah and turn back to hang with the crows down by the river. That's hell's bells, man. We're back in black. My grandfather's mother, the one who lived to be 98, was a widow too. Her husband died when my grandfather was three. He was her only son as well. Before she lost her husband... She lost her first two children in a house fire. Then my grandfather was born. This house fire evidently was torched by someone that uh, they called a witch, as the story goes. Her husband, exhausted from fighting the great regional fires south of Duluth, eventually succumbed to the flu. First the Cloquet Fire of 1918, then the flu epidemic of 1918. The end result, a widow and her only son, my great-grandmother, my grandfather, 1918. Hell's bells, back in black indeed. He had compassion for her. That's how our text reads, which Richard just read. He had compassion for her. The Greek word, splachnizomai, and I had to make a phonetic thing here. I can't remember that word very well. Splachnizomai, try that one out. 
But this word means to have pity, feel sympathy from the word splachnon, which means literally inward parts, entrails. The translation is compassion. I guess that's right in a way, but what we're really talking about here, I think, is guts. Jesus sees this funeral procession in Nain that day, and it hits him right in the gut, the pit of the stomach. In Luke, this word splachnizomai occurs only three times. Here with Jesus in Nain in Luke 7, and then in two really well-known parables, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son in Luke 10 and Luke 15, respectively. In the one, in the Prodigal Son, we have, in the Good Samaritan, rather, we've got radical mercy extended by an outsider. In the other, the Prodigal Son, we have unconditional acceptance of a sinner. Splachnizomai, compassion in the gut. So here's my new question, perhaps the question I would ask my pastor now 25 years later. Is this how the dead are raised? Not just the physically dead, the vulnerable, the neglected, the stigmatized, the unrepentant, the faithless? There's no mention, for example, in today's text, of any faith or virtue on the part of the widow of Nain or her son. Nothing. Is that the origin of the resurrection in the bowels? Radical mercy and acceptance so deep it forms, takes root, if you will, in the pit of the stomach? Is this where the dead are raised? I was in the driver's seat, now on our way home, driving down I-35, just south of Duluth, and me wondering this time about a box just behind my daughter in the back of the car. She was probably starting a new package of cheddar bunnies or sleeping or both. We had just seen my grandfather earlier that day. He was still alive, but things didn't look good. He was dying for sure. In this box behind the back seat was my grandfather's confirmation Bible from 1930. My aunt gave it to me the day before as we cleaned his house. Everything in it was in Finnish. The Bible the dedication by his pastor, everything. I don't really speak Finnish, but I was reminded of a word that's still very much used today, sisu, which roughly translates as intestinal fortitude. It's even a brand of a line of trucks. If you ever go to Finland, and I guess I recommend it, I, you know, if you want to do that, and you notice a dump truck, it will probably be called a sisu, a dump truck called intestinal fortitude. My grandfather's Bible, there in the box, had been through the paces as well. 
It's literally duct taped on the spine. Given to him by his mother, the widow, to her only son. When I was growing up, my father used to tell me when it was unseasonably cold in the summer or late spring, he'd say, I've seen it snow every month of the year. Now, I didn't totally buy this, even as a kid, as often as he'd mention it. I didn't grow up in Minnesota. I didn't grow up like my father, just south of Duluth, that landscape now zooming past our window. Or for that matter, north of Duluth, like my grandfather. And I've never been to Nain, never to Zarephath. I can't even read that finished Bible. But in my gut, deep down, the snow now melted, I believe him. <laughs> 